Hey, good morning. This is uh, Reverend Willa Bass with uh, Words of Truth. We want to welcome you back to our show today. Dr. Casey, we've got a special guest with us today, man. It, it is a surprise to have uh, Reverend Craig Scheib here, you know, in the studio with us this morning. And we're certainly glad that he's come to be with us. And uh, as we, you know, we're doing this story around, you know, um, words of truth and different ways that we can impact the community. And so today we have a special um, treat for us, I believe, because uh, Reverend Shive has, has been uh, my friend and brother in ministry for a while now here in Winston-Salem. And uh, I believe that he uh, he brings a, a, a powerful story with him. So we've been talking around this, this idea of the questions of um, what are some of the things uh, in our community that has kept us from uh, dealing with, if you will, the past, you know what I mean? There's some brokenness, I believe. There's some things that need to be told. But we all have a story that we bring to this. No matter where we come from, if you were raised in America, you have a story. And so today, um, Reverend Shah, we want to hear your story. And we and hopefully we get to a place where we can begin to talk about the truth and reconciliation reparation work that we're doing. It's just beginning. But at least we can lay the foundation, if you will, of hearing uh, your story today and others that will be coming as a result of, of you sharing today. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. So good. Uh, Reverend Scheib uh, is the pastor, senior pastor of uh, Parkway United Church of Christ. Deeply involved in the community, has always been as a member of the Minister's Conference. Uh, we actually went to Raleigh together. I, sh I shared that on an earlier show that I went to Raleigh and I got arrested and you were one of, one of the six of us. When we went to Raleigh because of the things that happened with the majority of, of Republicans in the in the uh, legislature that we weren't able to get things done. Our Ernie Palmer was the one representative that called me and said, Reverend Bass, you all need to come to Raleigh because um, you need to see what's going on. We can't get anything done. So that's the kind of history we have together. And I appreciate your willingness to come and be with us today. You're a co-chair of the, uh, the um, Justice Collective and and a uh, team member of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation and Reparations process for Winston Slam. So thank you for coming and being with us today. And we'd love to hear uh, your story. So tell us about you. Who are you, your family structure, where you hail from? We can start there. Well, thanks so much for the invitation to, to be with you this morning. Uh, and thanks to you for uh, your steady guidance always of uh, opening eyes uh, to to a broader perspective in our community. Um, I grew up in a small town in the southern tip of the Fox River Valley in Wisconsin. The, uh, the really the territory, the uh, Ojibwa nation. And uh, it was uh, it was a community that was predominantly European American. We were benefiting a, a little bit, uh, my siblings and I growing up, and then my father, a high school teacher, was in charge of uh, exchange students. And so we were able to have babysitters from from Ghana and Chile, and uh, that was uh, a really enriching experience for us. And uh, and nonetheless, we, uh, we really didn't have... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, handles to begin to uh, uh, look look at the uh, lens of racism for for quite a while growing up. But uh, uh, 
I did have an opportunity in college to spend a year in Germany studying, or a semester, and uh, I spent most of my time there with uh, refugees from, from Afghanistan and uh, be- began to see things differently in that uh, second year of my college uh, time. As a U.S. citizen, I wasn't accepted by the German students largely. It was the time of the Pershing II missiles installation. And so, um, uh, you know, I was sort of an outcast. And so that was a new experience for me as a, as a uh, white cisgender guy you know, growing up in, in small town Wisconsin. And that began to broke, break open my, my, my seeing. And so when I came back, then I started to see things in our United States a good bit differently. Well, you know, that's happened to me as well. Um, I grew up um, military. My father was Army. And uh, I started school K through uh, junior high, really, in two, two, um, two different times, seven years total. First, I went over there, started school you know, K through three. So I came back. And then uh, went back again. And each time I was over there, I say that's what helped open my eyes, the idea that I saw the world in a bigger perspective. I grew, I, I grew up a 50s, 60s you know, child, so I grew up in segregation. But in Europe, in Germany, because the military had already desegregated, uh, I got to experience you know, the, the better things of life, if you will, and then had to come back here then and then uh, go up in the balcony to sit and go see a movie, where in Germany we didn't have to do any of that stuff. But one thing I want to get back to, um, Craig, and that is your experience in Wisconsin, because I spent some time in Wisconsin as well. Um, doing, I had an internship when I was in college, and while I was up in Nina, Wisconsin. And I knew about Sheboygan, but Nina and um, uh, Oscar Bagash, you know, I, I, you know I, I was able to you know, move in those places, right? Working for American Can Company, uh, minority, if you were African-American up there, and, you know, by myself, if you will, right? Uh, and there were some others, like you said, the immigrants, they, they brought in a lot. I noticed that in Wisconsin, you know, um, in the, I don't know, it was the the, the, um, the business sector or whatever, brought in, an, even immigrated from folks from to college, to school there. And so um, so I saw this culture, you know, developing. Matter of fact, my girlfriend, Diane, now my wife, I invited her up. And we were walking downtown in Nino one day, and this, this mother had her kids with her. And we walked by and the kids would say, oh, look, 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 you know, and they couldn't. They were talking about Diane's hair. We both had afros. I mean, you can imagine, you know, seeing Angela Davis with her hair. That's where I, you know, we had these big afros and they couldn't believe that, you know, these half and they wanted to touch them. So, you know, we let them touch the hair, you know, yeah, cool. You know, these kids hadn't seen anybody that looks like us. Right. You know, we're novelty up there, man. So I know a little bit about that culture in Wisconsin in those years. You know, it was very conservative. Right. And everything was kind of like, you know, nuanced. So, yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so. So how did you get to um, to Rochester then? Because I remember you telling me about you living in Rochester. Actually, Syracuse. Syracuse. Syracuse, okay. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I uh, after graduating from college, I went, I spent a year as a, a United Church of Christ volunteer in the Boot Hill of Missouri. And I, I worked with a, a housing corporation there trying to do some organizing of sm- 10 small communities that were were uh, supported by church people uh, after uh, they were being foreclosed by the FMHA. They were sharecropper families originally who needed a place to live. And so we were trying to get fire protection and uh, drainage um, so they wouldn't get flooded out. And uh, 
during that time, I, I was the only person of African, uh, of Amer- uh, European descent in the, uh, on the staff. And they really gave me a much bigger picture, my colleagues okay. there, especially awesome. the director. When I first got there, you know, coming from Wisconsin to uh, Lilburn, Missouri, uh, they sat me down right away and he, they, they laid out the landscape. They said there was a lynching on that corner in such and such a year. There's a lynching over here. This is what you have to know. And they began to just tell stories uh, at break time, at lunchtime. And um, that, that was probably the m- most profound education I had as, as a young adult. And uh, that helped, helped me begin to, to see things once again in a little bit different way. So then I went to, to seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and finished up there. Spent eight and a half years in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, working in mostly community ministry with... Uh, uh, year was that? Was that was 91 to 99. And uh, I worked with uh, housing and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of youth programming. We had a gym program. We had a uh, middle school writing program. We had an after school program, and uh, so I did that work. And then ended up in in Syracuse, uh, serving a church there in ninety nine till till two thousand. Uh, no, uh, yeah, ninety nine to two thousand and ten when we moved to Winston Salem. Okay, so the Syracuse experience then was that. Uh a very diverse neighborhood? Was it with the issues and things that you were involved with in the community? Well, uh, we were, we were, uh, Plymouth is a congregation that's downtown. uh, And so we were on the, really on the path to the, the public offices. So we, we uh, had lots of relationships with people who, who were just trying to survive. And, um, uh, we got involved with a number of different issues there. We we were part of the sanctuary movement uh, uh, with with a family, uh, a man from Honduras, who is uh, eventually married a, a, a woman from who is who was born in the United States. Uh, we started a, a worker center in our in our building uh, to help uh, workers understand their rights and. Uh, to guide them in in making complaints to both the state and federal uh, Department of Labor uh, in terms of wage theft and health and safety problems and and uh, uh, sexual harassment charges and so forth. Um, did a lot of training during those years and, uh, with workers. Right. So the sanctuary movement, though, that was a movement where churches provided safe spaces for people. That were um, immigrants, all right. They were, you know, different in the community, right? And they needed safe spaces where they could find boys and have, you know, safety and figure out how to navigate the community. That's correct. Okay. And we defined it at that time in the in uh, the uh, mid 2000s a little bit differently than some of the churches here were related to in North Carolina. We did not have the family stay in our church building, right. okay. but we tried to create. Uh, 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 surround them with as much um, uh, consciousness raising in the wider community as possible, right. and so whenever Mauricio would go to uh, to uh, the uh, uh, to the uh, immigration court 
we would be there and we would speak on his behalf and so forth. So uh, you came from Syracuse to here? Yes. Okay. And uh, when you came to Winston-Salem, was the uh, change organization already started or was it in uh, its infancy? Uh, how did you get? How did you become aware of change? This organization that that was established in Winston Salem as at a, a time it started in '99, and began to be uh, established uh, in uh, 2000 or so. And um, the idea then was to use uh, Saul Zelensky's organizing model, right, to help uh, give voice to the community, to address issues that yeah, have not been resolved and some injustices that continue to go on in the community. And so what, what, at what point did you get involved with, with change? Well, right away, when, when uh, I moved okay. here to Winston-Salem, I was trained by a similar organization of IAF or Industrial Areas Foundation. It was called Gamaliel. Right. And right. so I was really uh, part of the leadership of, of a, a Gamaliel affiliate called Axe in, in Syracuse. And so when I was in, in kind of a, a search for a new congregation, I said, you know, it's going to be really important to me to to go to a place where there is this kind of broad-based community organizing, and that congregation I serve really needs to be involved in that kind of work. That was one of my uh, key criteria in coming to Parkway, uh, because Parkway was a a member of change. Right. And so you um, have been involved almost then probably from the beginning in, uh, in the work of change. You came to understand it. I'm not going to put words in their mouth of what we were doing. And so we, we reached a place that we had, made, we had made some accomplishments, right? We, we got some city officials, you know, to commit to doing some things. We got some educational things done. We did some surveys, right? We found out there's some differences in education, uh, resources in the schools. Like some, some schools had more resources than others, right? And so the whole movement there of that work uh, actually, though, uh, came to an end uh, abruptly, I, my words, right? Uh, because of a disagreement, I would say, over what was next and how to deal specifically with the area, I think, of education. This idea that we have come to a place in education that we need to make some significant changes in um, how education was being done. You know, we already knew what the numbers were, the deficiencies in schools for kids. The schools were resegregating at that time. You know, had a lot of involvement around that. And um, so uh, so the organization... Um, Kind of just became dormant, right? Because of the, you know, the the inability of the uh, powers that be, I guess, the leaders of the organization to come to terms with the, the need to do very uh, in-depth work around education. And the reason why, and I want you to your input on this, it was the, it was the fact that uh, some of the organization leaders would would not even. Um, um, step back, if you will, from the possibility of busing that became, you know, an issue in most of the majority organizations said that, yeah, well, if you're going to start talking about busing, then we don't want to be involved. And we, that's an issue that we choose not to do. So, so what is your perspective on that part of it? Uh, and uh, would you agree on, on you know, the idea that education became a major issue and was a defining issue for the existence of the organization? That was a defining issue uh, from the, all of the stories that I've heard. <clears throat> Excuse me. That had already happened when I arrived in town, and okay. and it was already on the downward cycle. I would I would say, and so I had to catch up and begin to understand well, what's going on with with this organization called Change. Um, and I think from what I've been able to gather from all of the storytelling, a couple of things were at work there. 
One is that was probably an issue that the organization took at a time on at a time where they probably didn't have the people power they thought they had, and uh, and uh, uh, didn't have the uh, the the organizing capital. Uh, maybe hadn't didn't have the deep enough relationships uh, across the organization to hold together, to stand together uh, when when all of the, the darts started to fly from from the powers that be. Uh, but what ultimately, from my perspective, uh, again, from, just from hearing the stories, is what ultimately happened is that trust was deeply eroded right. during that time. As uh, our, um, our colleague, uh, Dr. Eversley, sometimes would say to those of us white colleagues who are, who are trying to be in accompaniment, don't turn white on us. And I think many congregations did exactly that, turned white at the wrong time. And so then uh, congregations, predominantly African-American congregations, felt that immediately. And, and we were at a time then where there wasn't that trust to move forward with, with new issue campaigns. Right. So, um, so, that the, uh, so change goes by the wayside, uh, my words, um, and had made some very significant you know, inroads in the community as far as voice and, uh, and, uh, and accomplishment on justice issues. I remember, uh, and you weren't a part of this, uh, I don't think, and you can let me know if you were, uh, there was a co-chair uh, group for the, um, for the uh, clergy caucus. It, it was in the tri-chairs. It was, it was Reverend um, Susan Parker, um, the pastor over at... Uh, uh, the Episcopal Church before Lawrence. Do you remember the pastor that was before Lawrence, Womack? I really don't, because um, Lawrence and I came to town around the same okay. time. Yeah, it was another white pastor, and then myself. And what we wanted to do to address the, the trust issue that you mentioned, we decided to begin to build relationships. And we had one-on-one -on -one meetings, right? But we, what we decided to, in a session, we decided to raise a question about what does justice mean to you. And, and I, I came up with this idea that if we could get in and you know, a handle on what justice is, because we were all talking about justice, 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 but it seems that there seems to be some differences in definitions of justice because of the fact that here we thought with education, educational justice, you know, you got to deal with this idea. If it came down to busing, then it's busing. You know, to us, that's justice. So we raised a question to the group about what was justice. And it was interesting that um, majority of the body at that time, when we had our uh, session to talk about that, when we ask them to use scripture, you know, what, what is the scripture that you use when you know, understand justice? And I would say 85% of the folks came back with the same script, scripture, Amos, that justice rolled down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, right? And so we said, okay, well, that's interesting that we can all use that same scripture of our understanding of justice, but at the same time, our, our experiences of justice is so different. And so I remember when uh, the pastor of uh, Ephesus Baptist Church at the time, you know, Reverend Edwards at the time, we were getting various pastors to have testimony. And he said, he gave his testimony one day and he said, something similar to what you did in your orientation, you said the group was telling you about what had happened in the town. He says he remember being from Alabama that his mother, as he was growing up uh, and he was asking her about, you know, life and stuff. And she was saying, you know, all right, young man, I'm going to take you downtown. We're going to show you what you know what uh, life is about and what justice is. 
and because um, something had happened. And so she takes him downtown to the to the courthouse. And outside, she said, "You see that up there?" She said, "That's justice." She said, "Make sure you don't forget that that is what justice is meant to us in this town." And what it was was a, was a lynching pole, and someone had been lynched from there. And he said they and he said actually there was a silhouette that looked like the the face of a person. That was a reminder, you know, of them in this town and this idea about what justice really was. And so we got to that point in the clergy caucus, but we couldn't go for the idea of, you know, going further with that, that understanding that justice is about for us. It's about how we experience life, you know, how the injustice of laws and, you know, uh, of the criminal justice system has functioned. Right. But we have never gotten the other side of that, to, to, you know, totally to the place where white folk can get that and then begin to build trust around that. And that trust then gets built around the uh, the execution of action around issues. And so so that that brings us really to um, to where we are today in today's time with uh, January 6th at our backs. when now we have the idea of a president has said that things like, you know, the elections have been, you know, rigged and, you know, they're, you know, they weren't correct. Right. And all these notions, if you will, of what uh, things, what meanings of life we have and, and what democracy means. Right. In America. And uh, as a result of all those things, we have been working on this idea of truth reconciliation, and we call it reparation. And so I really wanted to, to get your take on, uh, with those kinds of things as a background, you know, are there still stories that we need to tell in order to help then build trust in Winston-Salem so that we can, you know, move this process forward? You know, are there, what kinds of things do you think we need to do? And you've begun to do some kind of interviews with that, and uh, the kind of interviews that that have been done, basically, as I said, have been most of us people of color, black people, but they haven't been white people. And so, do you see opportunities for us to do more of that um, in the future, um, or what? what? What direction do you see us going in, trying to build this thing called trust in Winston State, and allowing folks to begin to be healed because of experiences that they've had related to things like Wilmington on fire. And I don't know the stories in Winston Salem, but I do believe they exist. Uh, and is that something worth worth us pursuing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad to be a part of this exploration. It uh, it really, truly, in my mind, is uh, building the road as we walk. Uh, you know, there are some models in other cities, uh, and yet it has to it has to emerge from the stories of this place and the relationships of this place. And so, um, so I, 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 in thinking about this, um, I, I go back on the, the framework of, of the book that um, uh, Dr. Darity uh, 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 of Duke uh, wrote in, in his book that was published last year about, about 21st century reparation for African Americans. He really does focus on people of African descent. But um, he talks about truth. There has to first be truth-telling to really understand the stories. And then there needs to be a redress, and that redress can come in all kinds of forms. Uh, uh, it, could be, it could be providing um, uh, uh, financial opportunities for, for people uh, who, who are descendants of those directly impacted. Uh, and then there has to be closure, he calls closure, which means significant policy shifts that, 
that mean we're not going to continue to do the harm that we've always done as uh, municipalities, states, uh, uh, corporations, uh, institutions of learning, uh, churches, uh, other uh, communities of faith, and the federal government. And so I, I think of it going all, you know, not that you have to do one completely before you do the next, but I think those three components really help me understand what our work is right now. And there's a sense of urgency about it, because uh, we, we, can't, we can't just keep talking about this stuff. Right. We need to find pointed policy solutions to this. And so that's, that's what I hope we're about. But let's just, I mean, you could, you could go down the line in any particular issue. We've talked a little bit about education so far this morning, but you could, you could do the, the, the legacy of health care disparity. You could do the uh, history of food access you, in this, in this, uh, in this uh, city. You could do uh, uh, any number of issues. But let's just take housing because this week I've been doing a little bit more research on that. I mean, in 1912, I mean, we have not really told the story in 1912 what happened with uh, the uh, um, Board of Aldermen of, of Winston-Salem caving to white culture pressure and saying, okay, this is when we're going to start segregating neighborhoods. And what happened from there? Right. Uh, and then we, we, don't, we haven't really talked fully, publicly, in a broad sort of conversation about the, the destruction of of vital uh, communities uh, of of African Americans, whether that's Blues Street Blues Street neighborhood because of the construction of of uh, uh, Highway 52 and and then the the inner belt um, uh, when when there was so-called um, urban revitalization, revitalization. Uh, right. uh, a Happy Hill. Many, many communities so so vibrant in in their heyday and totally destroyed and and never full compensation for those residents exactly. uh, who were forced to move somewhere else, exactly. uh, totally displaced from a sense of rootedness in place and relationships and and economic vitality of a particular neighborhood exactly. um, you know we haven 't really fully talked about uh, uh, the there have been some great studies over the last five years about um, still to this day the disparity in in um, uh, loans or uh, mortgages uh, that that still exist and have existed in our community in the entire the entire history um, or uh, the the history of valuation you know that that uh, uh, neighborhoods in the north and east side continue by our our Forsyth County to be undervalued. Families who this is the only thing that they've been able to build a sense of capital to pass on to a future generation. Exactly. And and this is the story right here in Winston Salem, Forsyth County, uh, that it happens across the nation that there's a the wealth wealth disparity of at, at least eight or ten to one between families of African descent and those of European descent. So those are the stories we need to tell and then figure out, okay, how do, how do we mark that publicly, right. including our, our, our municipal governments? Exactly. And then what are the things that we do to remedy that? I think this legacy still shows us this is the backdrop to why affordable housing is just so, so meagerly addressed 
in our community right now. Mm. Well, um, you hear the fire in, in Reverend Sharp. Uh, very good. Um, everything you said, uh, we got on record now, and uh, that's the work. And so I really appreciate your breaking it down like that because you are those are the pieces that we must begin to look at, the idea of municipalities and the way they function, but also private business because we know private business function, uh, municipalities function for private business, but we got to bring them in the mix as well because they played a role in that. The idea, there was a story, you know, when we were doing the work for change around um, the, uh, the stock, there was stock for slaves and Wachovia was one of the banks that held stock for uh, for private business, you know, for slaves. And so those kind of things need to be brought out as well. So I want to thank you today for, for your, your input and uh, your story and your opening uh, sharing of, uh, of um, uh, truth uh, in word. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, dialogue, and we certainly want to continue to uh, uncover, expose, and to enlighten you know, our community so that we can provide means that we can go forward and uh, do what I say is uh, have flourishing communities for all citizens in our community, whether they are residents or whether there's, I mean, residents rather than not citizens, but because I don't think that everyone in this community is a citizen, but they are resident. We should be providing means for people to have access to the things of life in our community as well. So thank you very much for being a part of this. And Dr. Casey, I think we had a good one today. Uh, I think we can move on to the next one. So stay tuned and uh, let's see what happens next. Thanks for the conversation. So when you thank your guests, give them a chance to say, Oh, there you Thank go. Thank you for having me. All right. You can do that again. Okay. So we would like to uh, thank you for coming and being a part of this. This is a, a movie. So to help, hope you want to come back and be with us. What do you think? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation this morning. And uh, may it may it be the start of many more. And so we want to uh, let you know that, that this is a continuing uh, dialogue. Uh, we certainly want you to uh, be aware of what's coming next. It'll be a surprise, whatever it is, but it always will be on the idea of how we build community, what this full community look like, and how we can share life together as a community. Thank you for tuning in, and see you next time. Peace.